Wonderful. Thank you. Take your seats. Thank you both so much uh, for leading us in our singing uh, this morning. And uh, please do keep your Bibles open to page one as we uh, start looking in our new series at these first four chapters in Genesis. And I'm very much looking forward to heading into them over the next uh, first half of this term, I hope you are too, as we look very deliberately at the beginning of everything. And that will uh, do alone as a tagline for the series. Genesis 1 to 4 is the beginning of absolutely everything. Genesis reveals to us the beginning of the world, the beginning of the cosmos, in fact, the whole universe, the heavens and the earth, we read. Genesis reveals to us the beginning of humanity and everything that that entails for humanity as these chapters reveal to us the beginnings of the unchangeable reality and divine importance of, of gender, of man and woman, their different and complementary roles and how they connect rightly through friendship, through, through sex and marriage, how they are to work and serve together, how humans are to look after and steward the world together, how they are to rest together. Genesis also reveals to us the beginning of human sin, which means it reveals to us the beginnings of our current human condition, the source of disobedience, the nature of evil, the rationale of our suffering, the results of the fall, and the hard and sad beginnings of death itself. But Genesis also reveals to us most potently the beginning of eternal redemption and personal salvation for this fallen, broken humanity. Genesis 1-4 to is the beginning of simply everything. But as Will will detail for us in depth next week, the only reason we are bothered by looking at the beginning of everything is because, far more importantly, Genesis 1-4 to also reveals the one behind the beginning of everything. God himself, the God who is transcendent and present before and over creation, the God who brings material order from immaterial chaos simply by the word of his mouth. The God who is the almighty eternal authority over every single thing, visible and invisible, from the smallest part of the smallest atom to the enormity of the universe itself. And most importantly, Genesis 1-4 reveals a God who reveals himself to his creation personally and who will save through himself and to himself personally his fallen, broken creation. Genesis, specifically Genesis 1-4, tells us the beginning of absolutely everything, all of which begins with God. But before we head properly into those verses next week, as Will starts the book proper for us, looking at Genesis 1-1, as he will, diving into the reality of the God who was at the beginning, what I want to do this morning is explain to you why we're looking at the book this term, why we are looking at the beginning of everything, why we are looking at Genesis 1-4, this half term, where we go after Genesis, next half term, and, and how we're going to preach and teach it. And, and in doing that, I want to take the time today to, to explain how Genesis works as a whole in relation to the rest of the Bible as much as I can, and, and therefore what it means for us this morning, sitting here in Collington in the 21st century. And that brings us to our first question of the series. That is, what does the beginning of everything have to say to us today? For far from this book... And these first four chapters merely being a nice poetic overview of creation written thousands of years ago about an event that has little bearing on us today that we can sort of take or leave. And that is a view held by some Christians. I want us to see very practically this term, how having a robust and right understanding of Genesis 1 to 4 infects and affects everything we do and are. I want us to be convinced that Genesis 1 to 4 directly impacts those of us who are sitting here in this building this morning, and not just as humans, as much as Genesis 1 to 4 has 
everything to say about us as humans, but specifically as redeemed humans. As the church, we who are God's people, made in God's image, now redeemed into God's family. What does Genesis 1 to 4 specifically have to say to us, the church, God's church, the, the creator's church? For the principles and bedrock truths of Genesis and its account of creation have an almighty impact on every sing, single thing that, that the Bible says about anything, about why the redeemed church of Jesus Christ here at Redeemer, the local church of Jesus, why we're here at all, and how the redeemed church of the creator God works functions and, and is to thrive in the world. And to prove that point biblically for us over this term, as soon as we finish Genesis 1 to 4, after half term, we're going we're to leapfrog straight into a book near the end of the Bible in the New Testament, 1 Timothy, a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his young new minister of a small church plant in a town called Ephesus. Now, I've not done this before. What I'm going to try and do over this term, leading right up until Christmas with Will, who'll be preaching some of this with me on Sundays, and with your growth group leaders, who'll be leading our studies on this midweek. What we're going to try and do is we're going to take Genesis 1 to 4 and 1 Timothy, and we're going to place them together side by side uh, in order to see how both affect the other through the arc of biblical redemption history. Um, it's to my shame, actually, that we don't do more of this at Redeemer. A few of us went to the Tyndale House Conference uh, at Chalmers a number of months ago, and I was convicted publicly by the need to preach Biblical redemption, the, the, the sweep of the Bible, in other words, how the ark of the Bible fits together as we see the Old Testament informing and affecting the New Testament. That's very much what I'd love to try and do this term. For you see, if Genesis, if the beginning of everything shows us the beginning of God's plan to win back his fallen, sinful, rebellious humanity to himself into a life where we are now back under his rule and blessing again, where better to see the full outcome of that plan the, the full outcome of Genesis 1 to 4, than a book of the Bible which details the outcome of that plan. A, a book of the Bible which details what the church of the redeemed people of God in the earth look like back under God's rule and blessing and why they should look like that. And that's exactly what 1 Timothy does for us. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing to a young church minister in a small growing church on the edge of a large city about how a faithful, Christ-centered, gospel-focused church is to function, how it is to be led, how it is to be brought out of uh, chaos into order, and how it is to thrive in the world. And the reason why I want to preach Genesis 1 to 4 before we get to 1 Timothy is because Paul uses Genesis 1 to 4 as a foundation to explain all those things. How a faithful, Christ-centered, gospel-focused church is to function, how it is to be ordered, and how it is to be led so that it may thrive in the world. And the reason Paul does that is because in 1 Timothy, we will gradually come to see how the church is to mimic creation realities before the fall. For that is quite simply what the church is. The church is a picture, it is a poor picture, but it is a picture nonetheless of how fallen, sinful humans who have fallen out of right relationships with each other, who have fallen out of right relationships with God, as we see in Genesis 3, are saved back into God's community, back into right relationships with each other again, back into right relationships with God again, allowed to have access to him after we had been banished from his presence, drawing us back as humans into relationships that we once experienced with each other, that we once experienced with God, and, and more than that, that we will and perfectly experience with God in the future. 
in true perfection, in the, the final perfect garden of the Lord in eternity, all because of the sacrifice of the Creator. You see, the church is meant to be a picture of pre-fall, post-death reality, one for us in Jesus, that we are allowed to live in the present age in front of the world. And that is an amazing thing. And because of that, because it's true that all that works together, it makes perfect sense that we start in Genesis 1 to 4 as we get our hearts and minds prepared to tackle 1 Timothy. And the reality is 1 Timothy is going to say some very uncomfortable things to us about church life that we really are going to have to wrestle with in the second half of this term as a church family together. 1 Timothy is going to challenge us about how the church of Christ is led, about the need for there to be a plurality of godly, accountable male elders to lead God's church in the world. 1 Timothy is uh, going to teach us the different roles of men and women in church life and why they are different, why gender is so important in God's family and how we all work together in our roles as equally redeemed people in the Lord Jesus. 1 Timothy is going to be teaching us about how we use our bodies rightly in friendship, in sexual relationships that are fixed in monogamous heterosexual marriage and in self-sacrificial non-sexual friendship as well, all, all defined by our genders that God has given to us before the fall. 1 Timothy is also going to dig deep into the reality of, of what we are doing for the poor, the, the dispossessed, the widow, the last and the lost, as we look after people made in God's image and hold them in higher esteem than the world does. And 1 Timothy is also going to challenge us as to whether we are holding really fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, as supremely uncomfortable as it might be in the world, and getting rid of every kind of teaching that would draw people away from Jesus, away from his perfect kingdom, away from kingdom living, even if that gets us into trouble. And all of those things, as uncomfortable as some of those things will be for some of us in different ways and at different times, all of those things only make sense. The, the reasoning behind why Jesus, through Paul, says these things to us as a church only makes sense if we look at all of that in the light of Genesis 1-4 in the light of God as creator, in the light of his agency in the world, in the light of him knowing more and caring more about us as humans than we do, in the light of humans being created differently in God's image as men and women in their roles, in the light of how God establishes leadership and work in perfection, in the light of his supreme authority over all matters concerning humanity and his redeemed people that we do have to obey, in the light of him who saves us to the uttermost from pain and death into his eternal perfect family, the church, the, the church which is Christ's body on the earth, which we can now begin to example more than any other organization on the planet, what it means living under God's rule and blessing in his perfect kingdom, what that looks like, exampling right relationships with each other as they were before the fall, where the creation order has been rectified and put right once again, where we've been brought back by the blood of the one who created us, we now belong to him, where his rule and reasoning matters, not the world's. Where he is now Lord and God of our lives and not ourselves. Just as it was in the beginning. And just as it will be in the end. And more importantly, understanding the hard things Paul says to the church in 1 Timothy makes no sense unless we view them through an understanding of there being a personal God who wants to know his world and who reveals himself to his world through his word, ultimately through his son, who is held up in the truth of the gospel, taught and exampled by his church. And that brings us nicely onto 1 Timothy for a moment this morning, where I want, to, I want you to see this link for yourself in black and white. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy 
314, page 991, I think, in your Black Church Bibles. It'll be on the screen behind me. Read with me the verses where Paul details his reason for writing the letter to 1 Timothy to his young trainee, Timothy. And he says this. He says, I hope to come to you soon, writes the Apostle Paul to Timothy in Ephesus. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You see, what is the role of the church? What is the role that God's family, made up of fallen, redeemed humans, is to play in the world? It is to behave as the living God has commanded us to behave, as his creatures, as we belong to his household. For what purpose? In order to uphold God's truth in the world. Have you noticed it's not the truth that upholds the church? It is the church that upholds the truth. The church in the earth... We in Redeemer are to be a pillar and buttress of God's truth in the world. We're meant to hold it up. We're meant to hold it out. That's our role. That's an extraordinary role, if you think about it. It's an incredibly important one. It's the most important role in the world, in fact, as that truth is the gospel, the, the gospel concerning the Son of God, Jesus, the perfect image of God himself. The gospel which convicts humans made in God's image of their rebellion and sin, warns of God's wrath, transforms them by God's spirit in the sacrifice of Jesus who covers them for eternity. And all those gospel truths and realities are truths and realities we see in Genesis 1 to 4. All of that gospel truth, God's, God's image, sin, rebellion, salvation, is begun and exampled in Genesis 1 to 4. And all of that same gospel truth, God's image on humanity, sin, rebellion, repentance, salvation, must be exampled and taught in the church, says 1 Timothy. It must be lived out in our relationship. We have to live and act and behave and function that way as God's redeemed family. We have to behave according to God's design for us in marriage, in church leadership and structure and function, even if it's hard and cuts against our instincts. We must live this way because we have to uphold God's truth in a world which hates it. We have to show a redeemed pattern of human living, that humanity universally despised at the fall and rejected, but, but needs to know and, and should only ever want to follow if it knew what was best for itself. And we have to show how this way of living is possible only because it has been won for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In short, that the church stands in the center of history, if you like. It's quite a powerful image. The church stands in the center of history between the garden in creation with all its perfect relationships and the future perfect garden in revelation with all its perfect relationships and says to the world, well, if you want to know what right living with God in perfect harmony with him and with others look like, if you, if you want to know God's order and design and pattern for, for, for wonderful humanity, if you want to know how on earth we are able to, to even live this new redeemed life at all, thanks to the death and resurrection of Jesus through whom all things were created, then, then look to me. Look no further than me. And that, that's an astonishing thing to say. It's almost a ludicrous thing to say, but it's true. That's what the church is meant to be saying. That what, that's what the church is crying out to the world. We hold God's truth. And I'm not embarrassed by that. You find the true meaning of humanity, in other words, here, or, or you should. The church says, Paul, your tiny little church on the edge of this massive city, Timothy in Ephesus, to us in Edinburgh, is a small part of the only thing in the earth that holds up God's truth and pattern for living like no other entity does. It's astonishing. And it's hard. It's hard living a redeemed life, example in perfect relationships, right living when no one else does. 
and when we're still very imperfect ourselves. It's hard displaying godly leadership in the way that God describes in 1 Timothy and in Genesis 1 to 4 when it seems wrong in the eyes of the world. That is hard. And God knows that. Paul knows that. That's why he writes this letter to 1 Timothy. Why is he, he keeps reaching back to Genesis 1 to 4 to help us understand how to live, to, to encourage us that we're doing it right. How to trust God that what he says about human living with each other in his church it is right. The church is not just a club where we meet together because we make each other warm and fuzzy. No, it, it is the pillar that upholds God's truth and shows what redeemed living under God looks like. A foreshadow of what it will look like in the future new creation. And that is hard and it is serious. It's very important, says Paul, that we behave in this way. You are showing off God and his beauty. You are revealing Christ's death and resurrection. You are exampling what it means to inherit eternal life. You are revealing eternal human truths. You are meant to be exemplars of the design of God's relationship with his creation. It, it, it is supremely important that you behave in a way that shows off all of that, where you behave in a way that is so countercultural in a fallen world. You behave in a way that draws others to want to come in and take part in perfect kingdom living, a kingdom that will never end but, but will go on forever. Indeed, far from the church being written off as being in decline in the world and now no longer needed because of science, secularism, enlightenment, modern progress, etc., etc., it is in fact the only thing that will last eternally. Isn't that amazing? The, the church is an incredible thing. The church is an eternal thing. The church is God's thing, the holders of his eternal truth. And because of that, of course, it's not quite true that the church just says, look at me. The church actually says, come to me, see how badly I'm doing this, and look to him, Jesus. The one behind it, the one behind the church, the one over his church, the one who redeemed his church like his bride and, and died for her that, so that she could enter God's presence again. The one who, 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 who is taken by grace, this broken, failing, rebellious people who even now don't know how to live right and who are able to find grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is everything that Genesis 1 to 4 shows for us. Genesis 1 to 4 is not a scientific overview of the physical manifestation of the earth in, 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 in atomic detail. It is, as we'll see with Will over the next two weeks, an ordered, poetic, but deliberate and true account that reveals eternal truths, but which is designed uh, uh, to, to point to the nature and reality of the God behind it. You see, in Genesis, we see in 1 Timothy that we don't behave in these ways, we don't live in these new, redeemed, pre-fall relationships with God and with each other because we want to look good. It's because we want to show off Jesus. That's what Genesis 1 to 4 is, showing off God, the creator, the God behind it. But that's what we want to do as a church. We want to show off Jesus, God, the creator, the one behind us, the one who died for us. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth to the world. We are showing off the creator God, and that is everything. And I hope we do that as a church family here in our local community. Genesis 1 to 4 is the beginning of everything. It is the beginning of the gospel. It is the beginnings of the church. It is the pattern of what the church is to be. It is the example of how the church is to behave. It is the pattern of how the church in Christ is redeemed. It is the very reason why we're here in Collington as a church, visible and noticeable. Without Genesis 1-4, we are nothing. 
Without the God of Genesis 4, we are nothing. The gospel is nothing. The world is nothing. The Bible is nothing. The church is nothing. We, we genuinely may as well be playing golf on a Sunday morning, and that is a hideous reality to contemplate. That's what Genesis 1 to 4 is, the beginning of everything. That's what he has to say to us. But that begs our last question this morning, one that is easier to answer, and that is why are we looking at Genesis 1 to 4 and 1 Timothy, and, and why now? Well, I hope what I've said so far reveals why we're looking at these two books this term. For in the day and age that we live in, both in our society and for us as Redeemer, as a young, small, fragile church, where we are at the moment in church life, reading these books make perfect sense to us as to, as to where we are now. For in a world where every part of humanity is questioned, where gender is not fixed nor ordained, but fluid and chosen and changed by us on a whim, and where genuinely hurting people are brutalized and burned by that reality, in a world where sex and sexuality is obsessed over, abused, confused, and misappropriated, so much so that politicians physically cannot answer the question, what is a woman and what is a man? Let's see what the Bible says about that. In a world where our God-given, God-ordained material bodies that bear the image of the living God are, are, are hated and vilified and reduced to nothing more than bags of meat to be altered depending on how we feel at any given moment utterly reduced importance, mutilated for the sake of self. In a world where marriage is a temporary convenience that we can just duck off in and out of at a whim. In a world where endless consumerism, ideological materialism, religious secularism, rampant individualism, chronic isolationism, lurid self-promotion, they were all the gods of our age. In a world where God himself is a byword for naivety, stupidity, blasphemy, where the church is seen as a danger, and seems to be retreating in culture and public life with nothing to say to either. And in a world where Jesus most certainly does not seem to be king, in that kind of world, where we have no idea what it means to be human under God's rule and blessing, where better can we turn to be reminded of what it really means to be fully and freely and confidently and beautifully human under God's rule and blessing than Genesis 1-4, where it all begins? You see, Genesis 1-4 gives us confidence. I hope it does that in these areas of moral living, universal ethics, where we are as a church, increasingly we'll be in our society, we're going to want to tempt and flex and buckle on, be ashamed by, that all these things are good things, given to us by a good and faithful creator for our good and that we are allowed to enjoy living. That is why what Will says next week is so important, that not only that there was a beginning, but there's a God behind it, desperate to give his children every best thing. When we see that clearly in Genesis 1-4, to when we start the creation account with God and not ourselves, we can then see what God says about work and men and women and sex and marriage and leadership and stewardship and service and rest. They're not restrictive things, but beautiful and right things. Things are designed and crafted by the Creator for our good, with our best interests at heart, that are designed to protect us and uphold us and keep us happy and safe, where all of this matters, where we're designed with care and forethought, where, where God is personal with us. He loves to create us. He loves his creation. He doesn't make everything frustrating. He makes everything good. He makes man and woman really good. In other words, we have an almighty, eternal, everlasting Creator on our side, and he is a God who is for us. He's for his humanity. He's personally engaged in humanity. He's someone who's wanting to protect us for, for our good and our joy and for his glory. 
That is why we're looking at Genesis 1 to 4 now. And as a church that is needing to be evangelistic, wanting to speak to people the gospel, where better to point broken, confused people in our community, in our friendships, in our families, who have no idea of who they are, no idea of any sense of their identity of truth or as humans, who are so confused and lost, disillusioned about life, where better to point those kinds of people than to the very God who personally created them and who gave them order and purpose and meaning and significance, who gave them life and joy and hope, who better to turn our children to faced with the deep confusion of our days to the common sense and goodness and loving kindness of the creator father God in Genesis 1 to 4. Who better to turn everyone to than to the God who accepts people as they are and wants to transform them, never turning them away from him, wanting to help them through life. And where better for us to turn to as a church in order to be convinced that loving people, really loving real human people, is not letting them burn their way through their humanity and their life, content in their sin, content in their confusion, allowing them to remain as they are, affirming them in their losses, but to be lovingly, really lovingly sacrificing ourselves for them, speaking truth to them in deep human relationships, showing them the God who personally created them, the God who wants the very best for them as individuals as they are crafted with his skill and design, the God who, who revealed perfectly in his son, the Lord Jesus, who not only created them, but who died for them. Such was their worth as men and women, boys and girls, created by the almighty hand, the, the piercing voice, the incredible mind of the loving creator God. Genesis 1 to 4 is everything for lost, broken people. And because of that, Genesis 1 to 4 doesn't make us all cocky and happy-go-lucky and triumphalist, sort of thinking we've got God on our side. No, seeing the values that God places on humankind made solely in God's image, well, that should bring us to our knees in two ways. Firstly, as we close, going through Genesis 1 to 4 should bring us to our knees in humility and service as we see how far humanity has fallen, how lost we really are in the light of Genesis 1 to 4, how badly the world treats each other in the light of being made in God's image. If we really saw our community around us the way the Creator God does, then we'll ever, only ever want to do more as a church to love them to love them better than the world loves them. We, we should be outclassing the rest of the world in, in our sacrifice and our service and our care for our fellow lost humanity around us because we have the highest view of them as image bearers of the living God. Surely that matters for something. As people planned and ordained and designed and given purpose by a living God, we should have a much higher view of them than, than, than people and individuals in the world does who were at best see them as space dust and products of chance. Viewing humanity through the lens of Genesis 1 to 4 should drive us to our knees in service, in sadness, in humility, humble, willing service, where the unborn are protected, where the, the aged and infirm are kept safe, where the ill are looked after, the dying are tended to, the poor are loved, the marginalized are promoted. Everything that Jesus displays in his ministry as he treats people with the compassion of someone who seems to understand that he is dealing with purposeful, significant, valued, loved image bearers of God the Father himself, as he takes to his knees and he washes their feet. For in Genesis, everything is raised. Humanity really matters. Humanity is prized and given unparalleled privileged status in the earth, and yet we are abusing all that as image bearers, and that is a serious issue. We should want to put that right. 
and love others hard because of who they are and who they have been created to be. Secondly, however, it should bring us to our knees in repentance. As we see how badly we treat each other, not just those of us who are made in God's image, but those of us who have been redeemed by this same God, his church. We should be brought to our knees in repentance as more importantly we see how badly we have treated our Father God who not only created us, but who became a creature himself and died to save us. You see, if we have a robust view of Genesis 1-4, to we have a robust view of how we are to treat each other and how we are to treat God. In short, Genesis 1-4 to helps us keep the summary of the law that we looked at last week from Luke. How we love God with all our heart, souls, mind and strength, and how we love each other as ourselves. We can only do those things. The law only makes sense if we understand the people around us are made in God's image if we view each other as people who are fearfully and wonderfully made and not to be messed around with, having that view increases my respect and love for you. It really should. But likewise, we can only love God with all our hearts, our souls, our mind, and our strength when we see that he is sovereign creator, the image maker, the almighty, immovable, omnipotent, all-powerful, loving creator God, the one who deserves our praise, our thanks, and the giving over of our very lives as this creator God gave over the life of his very son for us. As we draw this to a close, therein lies the great dichotomy at the heart of the human condition. That only makes sense when we go back to the beginning of everything. How can humans be so brilliant and let so evil? How can humans create such beauty and yet cause such destruction? How can humans display such acts of courage and kindness and yet be the most selfish, selfish creatures on the planet to our own annihilation? Well, it's explained in Genesis 1-4. It is because we are made in God's image, given unimaginable skill, brilliance, and purpose with hints of being God's masterpieces, the pinnacle of God's creation, designed to rule and reign with him, and yet we blew it. We marred this perfection as we rejected God with his right limits placed on us, with hints of God being God's masterpiece now wrapped up and hidden and warped in our God-hating rebellion and our failure and our sadness, our selfishness, our death. We are glorious ruins as one preacher put it, once magnificent, now hollow and empty with signs of what, what could and should have been, marked all too heavily by the reality of what we have become. As Aslan, the great lion of Narnia, the great lion of C.S. Lewis's creation, says in Prince Caspian, as he looks over the human children in his country, he says, you come from the Lord Adam and Lady Eve. That is both honor enough to lift the head of the lowliest beggar and it is shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Humanity is everything to God, and humanity is deeply broken. We're not an afterthought, we're not a rush job, we're not a side project. We are image bearers that have rejected and lost sight of the one who imprinted his image on us. And because of that, we exist in a state of unbearable shame. But because of the plan God the Creator put in place to redeem this humanity in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the snake crusher that we'll see in Genesis 3, as beggars we were able to lift our heads and regain what was lost to us. Perfect redemption, perfect relationships with each other, perfect relationships with this God. That brings us back to 1 Timothy. Why are we looking at the beginning of everything as we function as a church? Well, because where better for us to turn as a still, small, new, growing church on the edge of a big city, a church that is still finding its feet to work out how we should behave, to work out how we should function, 
as God's image bearers and upholders of his truth and exemplars of this redeemed way of human living, how we should be led, how we should exist in relationship with each other, how we should example God's created order. Because we are pillars of God's truth in the world, all these things, leadership, authority, church structure, our ethics, as small and immaterial as some of these things might seem, if we are the pillar of God's truth in the world, exampling the relationships with God rightly, then it becomes really serious, all these things. And we need to work at them. We need to get them right as a church family, as we live under the authority of the Creator, under Jesus who leads our church, and that we are designed to show off and not be ashamed of that. That's what we want to try and do this term. As we are led by the Spirit through the words of Jesus, sent from the Father, our Creator God, I want to look carefully at Genesis 1 to 4, such that we are excited about who God is, who we are, who our community is, how wonderful and passionately, personally brilliant it is that we are created and set aside for God, able to live for Him. It's an amazing thing. I don't want these weeks to be heavy, I want them to be glorious. I want us to go straight into 1 Timothy because I want to carry that excitement and awe and wonder of creation and the creator into church life. I want us to be excited about church. I want us to fizz and bubble with the reality of what is actually going on here. It's eternally significant and and that everything we do really matters. I've got purpose. It's, It's why we welcome people into membership this morning. Because being a part of God's family is an important thing. It's a wonderful calling. It's why we're allowed to to say these vows and these promises, to try and live this way, because that's who we are, designed in perfect community, to live for the Creator, to show off all these relationships that we're able now to live before we get to eternity. It's an amazing thing. But I don't want to be glib either. It's hard. It's hard being a pillar and buttress of the truth in the world, where the world scorns the church, laughs at its apparent demise where the views we hold are seen as dangerous and intolerable, where we'll find what God says difficult sometimes over these weeks. But as we stand on the precipice of Genesis 1-4, to as we will in a few weeks' time, wondering how on earth we could ever be right with God again, I hope that seeing what our Creator God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ creates in us a deep and grateful joy of being in God's family, living for eternity, able to example right, dignified human living and bringing others with us into God's new Eden, the new creation. Let me pray as we close. Father God, thank you and praise you so much for all the things that we'll be able to look at over the next uh, few weeks and months in church life. Thank you for the beauty of what we've read and seen this morning, the wonder of the creator, the, 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 the order that you bring out of chaos, the way that you speak um, everything out of nothing through the power um, um, of, 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 of your um, almighty goodness and, and of your mouth. Thank you, Father, that you are this creator God. Thank you that you are alive and reigning today through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who you sent to reveal yourself perfectly to us, to, to win us back from, from our rebellion and sin, those of us who have rejected you. Heavenly Father, may we be really struck as we look at these first early chapters of the beginning of everything, just how incredible it is that we can be here this morning, even talking about who God is and and, and how we are redeemed. Father God, I pray that we would be excited as we look at your word over these weeks and months. I pray that we would be challenged and charged with the things that we maybe need to change, the things that we need to, to, to put in place in our church life, such that we are beginning to example right relationships with God, right relationships with each other again. And in a way, as we look into 1 Timothy, as we begin to example that before the world, not to show us off, but to show off the Lord Jesus Christ, who deeply, deeply loves his humanity. 
Father God, we thank you and praise you so much for this time together. Thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that he would help us leave here feeling more in love with him, more in love with each other, more in love with our community, and more in love with the gospel as we hold it out to others who need to hear it. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.